Hello, and welcome to Professor Kozlowski Lectures. Before we start today, I've got some explaining to do, I'm afraid. Um, so, for the last several weeks, I've, I've kept insisting that, hey, we're going we're gonna to do the ethics course at long last. Um, you know, I've been teasing it for literally years at this point, and the opportunity finally came up because I'm teaching ethics this semester, and now we're not going to do that. Like... This was literally the day that I was supposed to start recording the ethics lecture, so this is, in many ways, my mea culpa apology lecture on an ethics topic to sort of atone for the fact that it's not going to happen. Um, the fact of the matter is, when you're an adjunct professor, uh, you very much live on the balls of your feet. Uh, ever, you, you do not know until you have been given the classes whether or not you are going to be teaching, when you are going to be teaching, etc., etc. Um, so going into this summer, I literally thought that the ethics class was the only class I was going to have to record lectures for. Um, but going into this summer, one of my three department chairs had not yet gotten back to me about what I'd be teaching in the fall. So this week... Um, or rather, this past week, she finally got in touch with me and offered me a class that I have never taught before, and I decided to take it. Um, some of that may ultimately come to be regretted in the fall, because I am now taking a big pile of classes with a whole bunch of different curricula, and I may very well go insane, but... More on that in the fall when I'm actually in the process of losing my mind. Um, what it comes down to now is the ethics class is very much taking a back seat because I am teaching a course in the fall called Troy in the Trojan War, um, which is a class I've never taught before. Um, it's a class that I'm very much kind of building from the ground up. Um, and it is a class that will be taught at the school where I'm teaching it in a hybrid format, which means I'm going to need to have recorded lectures available so I can have the, have my students listen to them since we're only going to be meeting in person half the usual time. Um, my ethics class, by contrast, we're meeting in person for the whole class. Me recording lectures was largely just a backup plan for if I was out of class at one point, like if I couldn't make it to class. And also, just because I wanted to have them on hand, because I frequently do teach ethics, or used to, once upon a time, um, and I wanted it on the internet, because, you know, I've been recording all my other classes, I'm really happy with the way that those classes turned out, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people online, you know, it's helped to kickstart this little internet career of mine. Um, so all that to say, I did, in fact, want to have the ethics classes recorded, but the Troy and the Trojan War classes will be a higher priority. Um, so this summer, we're working on that instead. I am currently in the process of researching the class. Uh, it'll probably take me another week or two to finish researching the class, choosing my textbooks, building the curriculum. I am hoping to start recording lectures for Troy and the Trojan War in July, um, in which case we're going to get a whole bunch of them really fast because I'm hoping to record like four to six lectures a week. Um, in order to get them all done by the time that the fall starts. In, in fact, in time for, you know, August, because that's when all the crazy stuff starts taking place with class preparation. Um, so no ethics this summer, sorry, alas. Um, I might record a couple lectures during the fall. I doubt that I'm going to do the whole course. Uh, that would be kind of crazy, especially with the schedule I've already got worked out. Um, but there will be Troy lectures. At the very least, you can expect that we're going to walk through not just chunks of the Iliad, but the whole of the Iliad. So if you were dismayed by how little I had to talk about the Iliad once upon a time, do not worry. We're going to go through the whole dang book. 
chapter by chapter, section by section, and we are going to tear it apart. We're going to talk about the archaeology, we're going to talk about the actual literary criticism stuff. There's a whole lot that we're going to talk about there. Um, but we're not going to do ethics. Um, what we are going to do is one lecture today. Um, and there are a number of reasons why we're doing this particular lecture today. Today we are talking about abortion, is what it comes down to. But not really abortion. We're not really going to talk about abortion all that much. We're going to talk about the abortion debate. Um, and I want to emphasize the difference between those two things. Like, when I teach my ethics class, I usually do a fairly substantial unit on abortion. It tends to be the biggest unit I do. Um, like, when I was, in fact, teaching ethics once upon a time, I used to spend about a week on abortion. Uh, now that I've sort of rebuilt the ethics class for this coming fall, we're going to spend three days, i.e. a week and a half, on abortion. It's a fairly easy thing to talk about in the ethics world, even though it is an incredibly complicated subject to sort of fully grasp and, and discuss. Um, and there's a lot about it that is more than just the typical ethics discussion. Like, when you talk about euthanasia, at the end of the day, you're talking about, like, the various dimensions of euthanasia. Is it voluntary or involuntary? Acid, active or passive? Which one should be legal? Which one should not be legal? Um, abortion, however, is very straightforward because there it is so binary. There's the pro-life position and there's the pro-choice position. You are either for the choice to have an abortion or you are against the choice to have an abortion. And that's it. The trouble, though, is that this is so controversial and so built up, so polarized, that every part of this discussion, every time that you see people having the, quote, abortion debate, it gets really angry really fast. Um, and this was especially obvious recently. Um, I am recording this in June of 2022. We just last month, I believe, uh, got word of a leaked draft of a plan by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and predictably, when that information was leaked, a whole bunch of backlash from both pro-life and pro-choice communities sort of immediately followed with people basically banging on about how this is the greatest thing to happen, thank God this horrible law is being overturned, or alternatively, this is a huge step backward in progressive politics and, you know, it's ridiculous that all of these antiquated policies are still, you know, being defended today. Um, and one of the things that I really need to emphasize before we get into this business of the abortion debate or the abortion non-debate, as the title will have it, um, is the fact that both of these perspectives, like most importantly and most obviously about the abortion discussion, is the fact that the two sides are not talking to each other. Like, even the very names of the positions, pro-life and pro-choice, are emphasizing that there are two radically different perspectives on what abortion actually is. The pro-life discussion very much insists abortion is murder, and very much emphasize that the key issue here that we are discussing is the personhood of the fetus. They are a proto-human and should therefore have all the same rights as any other human. 
By contrast, the pro-choice debate is very much insisting that that is not an issue whatsoever, that we do not have to discuss the personhood of the fetus, and instead the key issue at stake here is this is about women's bodies and women's rights, and pro-life advocates are, in, rather than trying to emphasize anything about actual life, are emphasizing instead their control over women's bodies, something that has been going on for thousands of years and that needs to be overturned because this is draconian patriarchal nonsense. And what I want to emphasize is that both very much do not have common ground to talk about here. For the pro-life debate, this is not about women's rights, this is about the identity of the fetus, the personhood of the fetus, abortion is murder, case closed, our conversation is over. And likewise, for the pro-choice position, there is no point in talking about the identity of the fetus. The fetus is little more than a gummy bear or a haircut or whatever, just a random collection of cells that have no significant meaning any more than a cancer cell would. And we don't, this is entirely about women's rights and the pro-life people are just trying to obfuscate this. And what I want to start by saying is that we're not going to take either of these positions which is itself already extremely disagreeable to 99% of the people talking about abortion at any given moment. For us to not assume that this is just about the personhood of the fetus is going to alienate everybody on the pro-life side, and for us to, to not assume that this is just a women's rights issue is going to absolutely alienate everybody on the pro-choice side. But we're going to talk about this, and if we're going to actually talk about this, we have to sort of restrict these assumptions to the background, at least provisionally. Because the goal of this discussion, the goal, the reason why I'm recording this lecture, besides the fact that, again, I feel like I need to do a mea culpa because I'm not recording ethics lectures this summer, is because I am so sick of the discussion as it's being had. Like, the entirety of the outrage on the internet in that little couple of weeks in May, which everybody has apparently already forgotten about here in the first, second week of June, is just nonsense. There, there's no conversation being had. Nobody's even trying to persuade or convince each other. It's literally just sounding off on your side or on the other side. I fly my flag. I am a pro-life advocate. Or I fly my f flag. You are a pro-choice advocate. People get mad at each other for not being able to see each other's sides without, in fact, actually trying to have a conversation on the other side. So what we're discussing today is can we have a discussion? Like, not, again, this is about the abortion debate, not abortion. If you want a podcast or a carefully worded article or some, you know, persuasive essay that talks about why you should be pro-choice or pro-life, I will be talking about quite a few of them today. But I'm going to be talking about them not as convincing arguments one way or the other, but as examples of how this discussion is very loudly not happening. Um, that's the goal today. So we're going to leave our assumptions at the door. We are going to actually look at some of the reasoning behind why you should or should not be pro-life or pro-choice. We are definitely going to attack each perspective in some very significant and very, in some cases, nasty ways. Um, but the ultimate goal of this lecture here, the one you are listening to me recording as I speak, is not pro-choice is right and pro-life is wrong, or vice versa. The goal is to say we're all 
really botching this conversation. Um, and there may be reasons for this. You may come away from this saying, yeah, it's a good thing that we don't have this conversation. That's fine if that's your takeaway. It annoys living crap out of me, though. So we're going to talk about that. Um, and to start, I want to look at something fairly unusual. It's actually one of the most compelling arguments I've heard on the abortion debate whatsoever. And it is, weirdly, not at all an essay about abortion. It's actually from David Foster Wallace's essay, Authority in American Usage, literally a review of the dictionary. He has a really snazzy interpolation, which he does this all the time in this essay. Like, David Foster Wallace keeps writing these footnotes and tangents and all sorts of things. Um, he has an interpolation on what he calls example of the application of what this article's thesis statement calls a democratic spirit to a highly charged political issue, which example is more relevant to Garner's ADMAU than it may initially appear, in which he describes the pro-life and pro-choice debate. Again, one of the things that I find most compelling about the whole abortion discussion, one of the essays I've read that is most compelling about discussing my own opinions slash the issues that are at large, are an interpolation in an article that is essentially a dictionary review. But let's, I'm going to read it in its entirety. This comes from his essay collection, Consider the Lobster, which is one of my favorite essay collections in the world. Um, this is page 82 to 83. David Foster Wallace writes, In this reviewer's opinion, the only really coherent position on the abortion issue is one that is both pro-life and pro-choice. Argument? As of 4 March 1999, the question of defining human life in utero is hopelessly vexed. That is, given our best present medical and philosophical understandings of what makes something not just a living organism but a person, there is no way to establish at just what point during gestation a fertilized ovum becomes a human being. This conundrum, together with the basically inarguable soundness of the principle, when in irresolvable doubt about whether something is a human being or not, it is better not to kill it, appears to me to require any reasonable American to be pro-life. At the same time, however, the principle, when in irresolvable doubt about something, I have neither the legal nor the moral right to tell another person what to do about it, especially if that person feels that he or she is not in doubt, is an unassailable part of the democratic pact we Americans all make with one another, a pact in which each adult citizen gets to be an autonomous moral agent, and this principle appears to me to require any reasonable American to be pro-choice. This reviewer is thus, as a private citizen and an autonomous agent, both pro-life and pro-choice. It is not an easy or comfortable position to maintain. Every time someone I know decides to terminate a pregnancy, I am required to believe simultaneously that she is doing the wrong thing and that she has every right to do it. Plus, of course, I have both to believe that a pro-life plus pro-choice stance is the only really coherent one and to restrain myself from trying to force that position on other people whose ideological or religious convictions seem, to me, to override reason and yield a, in my opinion, wacko dogmatic position. This restraint has to be maintained even when somebody's, to me, wacko dogmatic position appears, to me, to reject the very democratic tolerance that is keeping me from trying to force my position on him or her. It requires me not to press or argue or retaliate, even when somebody calls me Satan's minion or just another shithead male, which forbearance represents the really outer and truth-grinding limits of my own personal democratic spirit. 
Now, because this is David Foster Wallace, we have a whole lot to unpack here. Um, for two to three paragraphs of what is basically footnote, there is a lot of conversation to be had about where David, what David Foster Wallace is emphasizing about the abortion debate. But notice a couple of things that he's emphasizing here. First, notice that he does ultimately come down to the position, I am pro-life and pro-choice, and for that matter, I consider this the only reasonable position to be in. Notice he has an extremely strong argument for why he is pro-life. Namely, when you are not sure whether a thing is a human being or not, it is best not to kill that thing. That's a really good reason to, you know, not go around killing fetuses. If we do not, in fact, have compelling scientific evidence one way or the other about what constitutes a person, then the best course of action is to not make any mistakes. Let's go ahead and leave the thing alive. But, at the same time, he emphasizes that part of his being a citizen in this grand democratic American experiment is to respect the positions of others, and therefore, if somebody does have strong opinions on the issue, it is our obligation to let them do the thing that they want to do. That's what democracy is all about. We agree to disagree civilly, in which case he is pro-choice. He is not able to tell anyone else what their religious or dogmatic or moral position should be if they come to a different conclusion than he does. But that said, he very much emphasizes that at the same time as there are extremely good reasons on both sides, there is an extremely good reason to be pro-life and there is an extremely good reason to be pro-choice, and at the same time we have to embody both of these perspectives simultaneously because our moral obligations about the worth of human beings requires us to be pro-life, while our moral obligations about the rights that those human beings possess oblige us to be pro-choice. He notices that also it's not a fun conversation to have at the best of times. At the end of the day, his position requires him to disagree with everybody. And by disagreeing with everybody, he is routinely boiled down to, as he calls it, either Satan's minion, presumably from the pro-life pro people who believe that he is culpable in the extinction of human lives, but also just another shithead male, i.e. another dude who is culpable for the gradual decrease and extermination of women's rights. Foster Wallace notices that there is no idler here. There is nobody who is allowed to fence-sit. If you are fence-sitting, you are criticized for fence-sitting. If you take one side or the other, you are criticized for taking one side or the other. There is no respect, in short, between the two positions or outside of these two positions. Whatever stance you take is going to ruffle feathers. It is going to tick people off. Which itself, you'll notice, Foster Wallace emphasizes is part of the tooth-grinding frustration of his own personal democratic spirit. This is not what democracy is all about. As much as Foster Wallace is sort of taking a stance on this debate, as complicated and nuanced as that stance might be, he is at the end of the day not talking about why it's a good idea to be pro-life or why it's a good idea to be pro-choice. He gives only a, a sentence on each. But why it's so frustrating to even have this debate? Remember, this is in a dictionary review. He is talking about language here. He is talking about the way we use words and terms here. And the abortion debate is a really interesting study in the way that we use language, in the way that we get mad at each other for our 
the way that we phrase things. So what Foster Wallace notices is that if, in fact, people are in these two very polarized camps, and if they are, in fact, accusing the other side of having a completely wrong-headed and potentially extremely destructive perspective, that is de detracting from our ability to basically be a democracy, for us to participate in, again, this pluralistic American experiment where everybody is allowed to disagree civilly, to have different opinions, and for us to respect those different opinions. In the abortion debate, there isn't a whole lot of respect for different opinions. You are either with me or against me. You are either right like I am or totally wrong. You were either a good person and follow my beliefs, or you were a terrible person and follow the other person's beliefs. Now, again, I started by saying we're not going to make the assumptions here. We're not going to assume that a fetus is a person. We are not going to assume that a fetus is not a person. We are not going to assume that this is purely a women's rights issue, and we are not going to assume that this is not purely a women's rights issue. But the reason why I want to not make those assumptions is itself rooted in some fairly interesting argumentation as far as I'm concerned. So I want to look at those assumptions. Let's start with the pro-life position. Obviously, the pro-life position is very much rooted in the idea that a fetus is a person in some capacity or another. Again, as Foster Wallace put it, since we do not know about the moral, ethical, metaphysical, ontological status of a fetus, and scientists are not able to draw the specific line at which a fetus goes from being a group of cells to an actual person, Foster Wallace assumes that the best case scenario here is just to, to not mess with it. Like, okay, if in fact we have questions about whether this thing is or is not a person, then it is best not to kill that thing. It is not best not to obstruct the growth of that thing in the case of the fetus. Now, obviously, this is a very far removed perspective from what we usually hear from pro-life advocates. Um, like, as much as there are some totally a-religious philosophical positions defending the pro-life perspective, the fact of the matter is that 99% of the arguments you're going to hear about the pro-life position are rooted in religion, are rooted in Christianity, at least in this country. Now that's not to say that other religions don't have perspectives on this. I believe Islam is equally critical of abortion. Um, like, there are different arguments in different cultures. We're not going to get into that here. Um, but I do want to confront specifically the Christian arguments here. Because one of the other things that I find so maddening about this discussion is that I really don't see where Christians are coming from on this one. Like, I've had it explained to me many times. Many Christians have come up to me and said, this is why I am pro-life, and I'm like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But generally speaking, I find their arguments extremely weak. Like... Obviously, for a Christian, when you're talking about anything, be it abortion or be it otherwise, you're going to end up referring to the Bible. Like, that is the place to go. That is the source of absolute truth. Like, I've talked about the Bible extensively on this, on this podcast. Like, we probably don't need to go into, again, the whole business of, you know, the inerrant truth of the Bible or the convictions that Christians place on it. We all understand Christians trust the Bible. 
Um, now, the passage that Christians point to when it comes to arguing why they are pro-life, why fetuses are to be protected, why you cannot go around having abortions, and why abortion must continue to be illegal, tends to be in a cluster of texts and proofs that don't actually have that much to say about babies at all. So the one that I hear referred to most frequently is a passage from Psalm 139, uh, namely verses 13 to 18. Um, reading from my King James Version, this goes, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from me when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. So notice, the argument here is, you knew me in the womb. In fact, you covered me in the womb. You made me in the womb. You were responsible for knitting my limbs together, for making me put together. Um, you knew me since this process began. You were there for me when this process began. I was not made in secret from you as much as I was secret to everybody else. Now notice... I mean, I don't know how you're reading this passage. Obviously, again, if so many people are convinced that their faith is telling them that abortion is wrong and I'm not seeing it, it could very well be that we're reading a different translation or you're seeing something in this text that I don't see. Like, again, my tendency toward reading the Bible is to be pretty agnostic. I don't like to sort of make conclusions about the text that the text isn't either explicitly or literally talking about. Um, but even if we were, even if we were to take this and that passage in Jeremiah and a number of other passages throughout the text that emphasize, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb, I can't help but notice one really obvious problem with this line of argumentation. Namely, everyone who reads this will, by definition of the fact that they can read or have ears to listen to this, has been born. Like... Again, context is always extremely important when you're reading the Bible. Like, obviously, when you are reading one of the letters of Paul, you have to go through this whole hermeneutic process where it's like, okay, how much is what Paul's saying is specifically to the church at Corinth, and how much is what Paul is saying relevant to everybody at, at all times, all over the place, universally? Like, are these commands general and everybody needs to pay attention to them, or are these commands specific to the group that he is talking to? Because occasionally Paul will say, you know, group A needs to do this while group B needs to do that. You know, there's that whole letter to the churches in Revelation when John is saying, you know, this church is too weak, but this church is too strong. You know, it's this whole thing. What is the context? Who is he talking to? Who is his audience? Why do they need to pay attention to what's being said? Now, since this is a psalm, you can assume that this is pretty general. Everybody is going to listen to this. Like It is just, you know, a song. It has widespread general wisdom here. It is not directed specifically to the Jews. It is not directed specifically to the Christians. You know, this applies everywhere. God knew all of us when we were in the womb. But again, 
all of us refers by definition to people who can hear this text, who can read it, and therefore not fetuses. To get more into the actual theology or metaphysics here, like, these texts assume God's foreknowledge. God knows how things are going to turn out. He therefore recognizes who you are and who you are going to be as early as when you are in the womb. But as much as this might be an argument for life begins at conception, most Christians tend to take it that way, I would definitely emphasize that we hear passages like this that have nothing to do with conception. You know, in Ephesians, for example, in that famous passage of Ephesians 1-4, God tells us, you know, we were known since the beginning of the world. Again, to read the King James, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is, again, God's foreknowledge. We were not just known in the womb, we were known before the world was made. God was planning us, specifically me and you and other Christians listening to this text, before there, were, there was even a world to sort of build these ideas off of. Which means, at least to me, there isn't anything special about being conceived in this case. At least not the way that most Christians tend to take this passage in Psalms. Like, if in fact God knew us since the womb, great, that's an important poetic, you know, emphasis. We should feel comforted that God has always had our best interests in mind, but not because it was the womb, because God has always had our best interests in mind. Like, that's the takeaway here. It's certainly the thing that the, po the poet here is trying to emphasize. Again, like, there's only one line about the womb, and it's not even clear that the later verses are referring to while I was in the womb specifically. Like, you made your members, yeah, that could possibly re refer to the womb. You did see my substance, yeah, that could possibly refer to the womb. But it's not entirely clear. Yeah, God fashioned me while I was in the womb, but he also theoretically fashioned those who were miscarried, and they're never going to be around to hear this text. They're never going to listen to how awesome God was in protecting them. Um, does that mean that this is a proof positive that, we, that life does not begin in the womb? No, not at all. But it does seriously undermine the strength of the Christian assumption that, of course, life begins in the womb, and the Bible says so. It doesn't. It seems pretty open on the subject. It seems fairly agnostic. The emphasis throughout is God knows you before you were made, before you were you, in a sense. God knew you when you were a fetus. God knew you when you were an infant. God knew you when you were a child. God knew you when you were a teenager. God knows you now that you were an adult. And at every stage of the way, God has your best interests in mind. But at no point does it seem to emphasize that there was this magic transformation that happened at the moment of conception. Fetuses don't seem to be an especially sacred part of that process. And as much as people do get excited about this passage, as much as I've heard many Christians say, you know, I will meet my miscarried fetus in the afterlife. I will see my child in heaven. I'm not entirely sure that there's a great deal of theological ground for that position. Now, that's being an asshole. Like, I should emphasize that right at the outset. To, you know, like, if you go up to, you know, recently miscarried mothers and say, I'm not sure theologically that you will, in fact, like, that's just being a giant asshole. Don't do that. Um, but generally speaking, I don't think that there is 
enough ground here for a strong Christian position that says life absolutely begins at conception, and therefore it is our moral obligation to go to the polls and make sure that nobody commits murder. Now, again, it's more complicated than that, but I also want to sort of drive home one text that I do think is particularly relevant in the Bible, and that almost never comes up on the pro-life debate. Um, you may have heard of it. I may have talked about it before on this channel. It may have come up in your searches before. This is a passage from Exodus 21, namely verses 22 uh, to, let's say, 24. Um, again, in the King James, If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, Exodus is full of laws. Um, and obviously, like, there's a really complicated issue here between, okay, which of the laws are relevant for just Jews, which of the laws are relevant for Christians, which of the laws have changed over time. You know, obviously, in like leftist circles anytime that Christians get uppity about that passage from Leviticus that says homosexuality is an abomination, they immediately cite back, and I suppose, you know, you're also refusing to wear clothes made of multiple cloths, or, you know, you're going to stone your own mother for speaking out of turn, or any of the other very antiquated and obviously very archaic and inappropriate laws that are listed in Exodus and Leviticus. But what I want to emphasize here is not enforcing the law. I am not going to go around saying, you know, if you cause somebody to miscarry, you know, suck, you will have to pay this person. What I want to emphasize is, again, the context and the punishment. What is being said in this text, at least as I read it, perhaps just in the King James, we'll get to that, is that if, in fact, you have a woman, and she's pregnant, and for some reason, somebody does something that causes her to lose the baby, the punishment is not you are guilty of murder and therefore should be killed yourself. Like, there are a whole bunch of restrictions in Exodus and Leviticus about what happens if you murder people. And frequently they end with, and then you get killed yourself. Like, this is not a wear-guild society. We are not talking about, like, Anglo-Saxons, and it's like, all right, you killed my brother, but you did it in war, so now if you pay me enough, like, we'll just forget this whole thing. No, the emphasis very much here is that this is of a different order entirely from murder properly understood. If, in fact, you hit a woman in the process of fighting with somebody, and she loses her child, loses her fruit, then you pay her, you pay the dude, and we call it a day. It's not a person, in short. There's no indication here that it's a person. If anything, I find this to be a pretty decent evidence that God's perspective on fetuses is that they are roughly in comparison to livestock and not in comparison to people. Now, again, I should emphasize this text has been translated and reinterpreted a number of different ways. I picked the King James because it's old and it's been around a long time, and generally I find it to be a pretty reliable translation because it's actually kind of super formal. But, and I should emphasize the but here, most recent translations, i.e. since the 20th century, have very much rephrased this passage so that the possibility of interpreting this as miscarriage is farthest from our minds. Like, the more recent the translation, the more likely it is that this passage refers to a woman losing her fruit in the most euphemistic and metaphorical ways possible. 
And at some point in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is political. We are deliberately, perhaps carefully massaging the text to not be about the personhood of the fetus here. Because the way I read it in the King James, this is very much about the personhood of the fetus. Um, this is very much about the status of the fetus in the eyes of God. Now, some modern translations will rec represent and recognize the potential way that I've translated it here. Like the ESV, for example, says, you know, if the woman should lose her fruit, and there's like a, and a little footnote that says, or miscarry. Um, different translations will, dif will emphasize different things about the passage. And honestly, I do not know, I did not look at the Hebrew recently enough to be able to say one way or the other if translating it away from miscarrying is valid. But what I want to emphasize is for all of those people who are sure, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God's knowing you when you were in the womb is proof positive that you are a life, a person, a you know sacred being in God's eyes from the moment of conception, that's a logical reach, and this one is less of a logical reach. It is less out of step with the Bible. It is less demanding of hermeneutic interpretation to say that God views fetuses on par with possessions and livestock than it is to say God views fetuses as fully grown human beings in their own right. Yes, God has foreknowledge, and that would insist to us that if God says, I knew you in the womb, he's referring to you, a grown human being, and not to fetuses that were aborted or miscarried. If, in fact, a fetus was aborted, presumably God knew that beforehand, and God did not celebrate or anoint or bless this fetus beforehand. At the very least, we are not in a position to say that he did for sure bless them and then got frustrated in his efforts. The Bible isn't clear is what this comes down to. Now that said, that doesn't mean that I think that all Christians are ridiculous, the pro-life position is nonsense, so on and so forth. In Christian tradition, like Christians have had a long, long history of avoiding and repudiating abortions and specifically taking infants' needs in care from a very early stage. Like, back in ancient Rome, as much as abortions were not all that popular, infanticide was surprisingly common. In fact, for a great deal of the ancient and medieval world, infanticide was surprisingly common. Um, there are stories of Roman women who would, like, have their babies secretly and then dump them in a fountain, intentionally drowning them so they wouldn't have to deal with them. Um, there are recorded practices, it's not entirely sure how common they were, um, that said that a man in the paterfamilias of the Roman family would, like, see this new child that was born, and apparently do the whole Roman gladiatorial Caesar does the thumb up or thumb down thing and say, you know, I want to, I want this child or I don't want this child. And if they said, I don't want this child, then it would be gotten rid of. Like, it would be exposed to the elements, we'd never see it again. And it was commonly known in ancient times that Christians would frequently adopt these exposed or abandoned children. Like, if they found a baby sitting in the fountain crying its head off, they would bring it home and they would raise it as their own. Um, Christianity and its very clear-cut and not in dispute at all arguments about loving one's neighbor, about protecting the weak, about taking care of those who can't take care of themselves, very much applied in these cases. So Christians were frequently considering infants and probably fetuses as well 
as having that status, as being those that cannot protect themselves. So being pro-life is not out of sync with the Christian position at all. And in fact, it doesn't surprise me at all that Christians are routinely pro-life, that they are usually against abortion. This is very much in keeping with 2,000 years of Christian history. What I want to emphasize, though, is that the argument they're usually making tends to be nonsense. For all of this emphasis on, you know, the sacred role of motherhood, on the sacred value of life, on taking care of one another, Christians point to some pretty weak texts to make their arguments. Like, if you want to say, I assume that a fetus is, you know, a person because, like, fetuses have no reason not to be thought of as, as a person, because, as David Foster Wallace says, with, if we are in doubt about the ontological status of the fetus, then we should do our level best to protect it, and we should not take its, its role light, lightly. Um, and therefore, I apply, love thy neighbor as thyself, do not injure the self, themselves, uh, take care of widows and orphans. Like, if you want to apply those texts, by all means, go for it. Like, I see plenty of good arguments for Christians to be pro-lifers in that respect. But insofar as Christians think they have the silver bullet fetuses are persons argument, I really don't think that's the case. Like, not even from a, if we trust the Bible 100% absolutely, do I think that we have the case. It's just not there. Um, so, again, as much as Christians take a very strong stance against abortion, I don't think it's rooted in good theology or good hermeneutics. And as much as I've heard Christian after Christian, like Dr. Peter Crave, my old professor at Boston College, say things like, the prevalence of abortion in our country is a holocaust of babies, I'm not sure if we really have a strong enough foot to stand on for that perspective. Christians generally have a very strong view of their morality, very strong view of their theology, very strong view of their metaphysical, metaphysical perspectives, but as much as this is taught in Sunday schools and on, from pulpits, and as much as this information is disseminated on the internet and through various blogs and magazines and so on, I really don't think this is as big an issue in the Bible as people seem to think. There's only a few passages that are even remotely relevant to this discussion, unless you take it as this broad ethical blanket of take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Um, which requires an assumption that the Bible isn't willing to equip us to make. There is still uncertainty here, more than Christians are willing to admit. And that frustrates me. That frustrates me a lot. Now, notice, I'm not even getting into the hypocrisy dimension here. Like, I am sure anyone who is listening to this who is stridently pro-choice is saying, but they don't actually believe in pro-life. They still support gun control. They still support, you know, like all sorts of horrific and draconian legislation against women who are single. Like, they are not willing to provide the sort of resources that, yeah, absolutely, and I totally agree with you, and yes, there are bad actors here, people who are speaking and acting in bad faith. We will get to that in its own time. Again, I am taking no assumptions here, or trying to. What I am observing is that the assumptions that are being made by a lot of the pro-life community are not as strong as they think, but I am also not going to assume that therefore it is bullshit. We are not going to go all the way over the other way either. 
There are definitely Christians out there who really believe that this is a hugely important issue, who really believe this out of truly held beliefs, whether those beliefs are in fact rooted in the Bible or not, and they're not necessarily just doing it for political points, or as some people seem to think, in order to exert male control over women's bodies. Like, some of the most ardent defenders of the pro-life position that I've talked to are women. This is not purely binary here. Like, my wife is harder on the pro-life stance than I am. Um, so, for sure, this is more nuanced than either perspective is trying to see. Like, for the pro-lifers in the pro-life movement, they think their argument is much simpler than it actually is. They think the biblical proofs are much more clear than they actually are. But at the same time, for the pro-choice community, they are convinced that pro-lifers are all just hypocrites and misogynists, and the fact of the matter is, they aren't. Many of them have a real belief that fetuses are people, and a real interest in protecting them. Because if, in general, we did expand this whole discussion of should we be able to abort a fetus to should we be able to, you know, drown infants in a fountain, generally most people on the pro-choice side of the debate would jump sides. That's the line for them. The key here is it's a different line. For people who believe in the pro-life position in good faith, that line is at conception. For people who have good faith beliefs in pro-choice, that line is at birth. The trouble is, again, as David Foster Wallace po pointed out, scientifically, it's not clear where the actual transition occurs. For all of those who once believed in conception, it seems really weird that we, many of us are drawing the line at birth, and for those of us who are drawing the line at birth, it seems really weird that so many of us are drawing the line at conception. So let's instead flip this around and talk about the pro-choice perspective. Now, again, just as the pro-life perspective very much emphasizes this is an issue about the personhood of the fetus, first and foremost, the pro-choice perspective very much insists at the outset that this is not a personhood issue. And it's complicated to talk about this because, again, there is no talking about it. Um, this is a difference in priorities, and it's not something that you can really argue one over the other. Like, life and freedom are kind of the two values that everybody thinks are super important, at least in this country. Um, these are absolute for us, and this is a place where they are coming into conflict. So very much in the pro-life debate, the fact that this is, you know, specifically related to women's bodies doesn't come up. Again, you'll notice, for all of that pro-life discussion, I was very much emphasizing this is about the person of the fetus, this is about where, the, where is the line drawn, does God believe that it's a person at this point, or at this point, or whatever, so on and so forth. Again, I just sort of sidelined the fact that this is a women-specific issue, and that this is about women's control of their bodies. Likewise, the trouble with making a transition from talking about pro-life to pro-choice is that we are immediately abandoning that assumption and adopting a completely different one that was irrelevant for the entire preceding discussion. Namely, we're not talking about personhood anymore. We're talking about women's bodies and women's rights. Women should have control over their own bodies. And the fact is, a fetus is not a person, is not a separate from a woman's body, and therefore should be included in that discussion. A position that, again, most pro-lifers would immediately wrinkle their nose at and get grumpy about and get angry about and refuse to acknowledge. But let's 
again, take apart this assumption. The idea that this is just women's bodies, straight up, no mixture, no confusion, etc., etc. Um, now, I kind of ended the discussion of personhood fetuses with the whole vitriolic language like Holocaust of babies and why people are so upset about it. I want to start with that here. Um, in the discussion of the, let's call it pro-choice camp in the ethical community, there are a couple of standout essays that have been circulated for a long time, many of which are like legitimately good, um, many of which I do in fact teach in my class when it's appropriate. Um, the two that I think of very obviously when it comes to the pro-choice perspective is Judith Jardavis Thompson's um, the or a defense of abortion, and Mary Ann Warren's uh, on the moral and legal status of abortion. These are two classics. They've been taught in ethics classes for decades at this point. They're both considered extremely authoritative in taking apart the abortion discussion and framing it in a way that is very much pro-choice. Um, I should start by emphasizing that Judith Jarvis Thompson has a really interesting approach to the discussion. Namely, she is looking at the issue from a Kantian deontological perspective, which means we're not talking about utilitarianism, we're not talking about what's best for the mother, what's best for the child, or any of the usual things that come into this debate. She is taking a much stronger stance and saying, let's talk about rights. Let's talk about the fetus's rights as though it were a person. And very much goes on to emphasize that a fetus, and indeed any other person, has no rights over another person. Like, the example she uses is, you know, fairly far-flung, but to sort of exemplify the issue of, you know, a woman has been raped, should she be allowed to abort the fetus or not, she says, imagine that this woman has been kidnapped and is now plugged into a violinist. And the only way that the violinist can survive is because they've, like, hooked this violinist up to this woman, and now, like, her blood is circulating through the violinist's veins, and, you know, whatever nutrition the woman gets is also being shared by the violinist. And the reason why we cannot unplug the violinist from the woman is because that would kill the violinist, and violinists are people, and that would be wrong. And again, like the abortion, like the abortion debate that we've been talking about from the pro-life perspective, this assumes the, fet the fetus is a person. Um, it assumes that, you know, it is as, as appropriate to give fetuses rights as it is to give violinists rights. Um, but what Thompson emphasizes is, no, the woman doesn't have to stay plugged into the violinist. This was not her choice. She is not in a position to, you know, like, she never asked for this. She was just randomly kidnapped in the night. Again, the surrogacy for rape here. And therefore, if she wants to unplug herself from the violinist and let the violinist die, that's entirely her prerogative. It's entirely her rights. The violinist has nothing on her. And what Thompson is very much suggesting here is that neither do fetuses. And as she uses multiple different examples to sort of sort this out, the emphasis that she is making is it doesn't matter whether the fetus is a person or not. It has no hold over us. If we are, in fact, independent persons, if we are, in fact, totally independent rational agents, then it is entirely our prerogative to just walk away at any time, including the third trimester, as far as Thompson is concerned. Now, she emphasizes if, in fact, you do disconnect the violinist and the violinist miraculously survives on its own, you know, if, in fact, the fetus survives, is, in fact, born during this process, then it is not our right to then, like, smother it to death, obviously. 
that's something else. Now we are infringing on the rights of this independent being. But if that independent being depends on us for our for its existence, for our sustenance, and we choose at any time not to continue giving it to that, then it sucks to suck. The, that fetus, that baby, that child doesn't have any rights on us. Rights don't work that way. Rights do not occur over other people. I have the right to not be killed by you, but I do not have the right to be fed and taken care of and, you know, sustained and to sit in your body for however long I want to, and you have no say in the matter. Now, Warren goes on to use some fairly pointed language here. Um, Warren's argument is, from a scientific basis, and this is probably the argument you've heard most frequently from pro-choice advocates, especially recently, from the scientific perspective, a fetus, especially in the early stages of its development, is just a collection of cells, is no bigger than, say, a gummy bear, um, and getting an abortion is no more destructive or potentially problematic than getting a haircut. Um, as she puts it at one other point, like the rights of a, or the, the hold that a fetus has over supposedly being alive is comparable to a newborn guppy. Um, if we are okay with the occasional fish dying, then we have to be okay with the occasional fetus dying. And this is the language that you're going to hear most often bandied about in the pro-choice community, like, or, you know, abortion is just getting a haircut, it is, you know, getting rid of a fetus the size of a gummy bear, it is, you know, so on and so forth. And again, when that whole discussion very much flared up a few weeks ago as a result of the Supreme Court leak, um, that's the language I typically heard. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that that's really not great. Like, the fact of the matter is, we are talking about something more sophisticated than a gummy bear, a haircut, or a newborn guppy. We're talking about a thing that could be a human being. Like, even if we go ahead with the pro-choice position and the more typical way of appreciating the pro-choice position, you know, this is not a person when it is in the womb, if in fact we do, you know, side on that position that, you know, David Foster Wallace takes... We don't know whether or not it is a person and at what point it develops into a person. If we assume that it is not a person, it doesn't change the fact that this is a thing that is in the unique perspective of developing into a person if given the opportunity. This is special in some sense. And if, in fact, you pro-choicers are like, oh, you're misrepresenting our position, yes, I get it. But nonetheless, what I want to emphasize is that this is not the common experience. The article, the other article that I find the most helpful and the most illuminating as far as the whole abortion debate, in addition to my David Foster Wallace footnote, is an essay by the name of Expanding the Discussion About Fetal Life Within Pro-Choice Advocacy by a woman named Bertha Alvarez Mananen. Um, and part of the reason why I love Mananen's essay is because she's coming at it from an ethics of care perspective, which you probably have already heard about how excited I am about ethics of care and how awesome it is, but definitely in my ethics class, it's a huge part of the class, and I definitely like talking about it. What Manon notices in her essay is that there are problems with the fetus as haircut, fetus as gummy bear, fetus as newborn guppy arguments, and it is driving people away from this discussion. Um, the introduction of her essay starts, For the first six years I taught applied ethics, I assigned Mary Ann Warren's On the Moral and Legal Status of Abortion as a partial representation of the pro-choice perspective. 
Within the last two years, however, I have ceased assigning the article because I noticed that many students respond aggressively to it. Particularly, they recoiled at Warren's statement that human fetuses are equal in moral status and value to a newborn guppy, and that for those who support abortion choice, abortion is as morally innocuous as obtaining a haircut. Repeatedly, I would hear from my students that Warren's position regarding the value of fetal life, one that derided it in a seemingly callous manner, was sufficient for deterring them from self-identifying as pro-choice advocates, even though they did actually believe in abortion choice. Warren's flippancy toward fetal life can be seen in the writings of other members of the pro-choice community. In her book, Why I Am an Abortion Doctor, Dr. Suzanne Papama, although providing an excellent perspective on the need to retain access to safe and legal abortion, consistently refers to fetal life in less than respectful ways. She tells a story of a plumber who is called to her clinic to install a disposal system in order to reduce large pieces of post-abortion embryonic and fetal remains. The plumber, realizing what the disposal system would be used for, starts to sob and refuses to continue the installation process. Papama derides the plumber's reaction, referring to the spectacle of a plumber on his knees sobbing about a garbage disposal as reminiscent of a dark comic opera. Throughout her book, she calls the embryonic and fetal remains simply tissue, and regards the disposal of embryonic and fetal life as no more significant than the disposal of any other post-surgical tissue. In yet another example, in her book, Breaking the Abortion Deadlock, Eileen McDonough argues in favor of abortion rights by construing the fetus as, essentially, an aggressive intruder whose removal warrants lethal violence. She argues that all cases of compelled pregnancy are morally akin to rape and kidnapping, since the fetus intrudes upon the body of the woman without her consent. Although McDonough explicitly acknowledges that the fetus is not a moral agent and so is not intending to intrude or on or harm the woman in any way, she still continually refers to it in language that paints the fetus as, essentially, a tiny rapist who coerces a woman into pregnancy. Now, at this point, in 2022, some years after this article was written, it's possible that things have changed. I found that my students don't tend to respond as aggressively towards the newborn, or the fetus as newborn guppy, fetus as haircut, fetus as plumber disposal, you know, perspectives. Many of them are hardened by these arguments to the perspective that this is no, this tissue is in no way different from any of the other tissue, as that uh, surgeon very much argued. But I also very much identify with Mananen's issues here. What Mananen ultimately argues um, is on in this uh, a couple of paragraphs further down, many other feminist writers acknowledge the moral ambiguity that may accompany a particular exercise of abortion choice, even if they ultimately argue in favor of women possessing this right. Likewise, many members of the pro-choice community do not regard fetal life as having any value at all. Both kinds of individuals make up abortion rights supporters, but my concern is that it is the position of the latter group that is sometimes regarded as the official face of pro-choice advocacy, and that it is, in part, this face that is leading to our losing the public relations battle in the United States. This concern stems from over 10 years of discussing abortion ethics with students, colleagues, and many individuals in the general public, in addition to how I have seen pro-choice advocacy portrayed in the media. What Mananen is arguing here is whether or not the scientific decision is that aborting a fetus is comparable to aborting, you know, a newborn guppy, it doesn't change the fact that for a lot of people, 
fetuses matter. They are more important than newborn guppies. They could develop into full-fledged human beings. They could, in fact, be a person. Like, at the end of the day, to put it in more 2022 terms, if we are, if the pro-choice position refuses to validate the experience of someone who does struggle with the choice to have an abortion or not, who is, in fact, recognizing that this may be an opportunity to develop a fully-fledged human being and chooses not to abort for that reason, we are alienating them. Likewise, for a woman who suffers depression because of a miscarriage, the correct response to them is not, don't worry about it, it's just tissue, but rather to emphasize and empathize with this woman who has in fact lost something. There are many people in this country working very, very hard to become pregnant, to have a child, and for the entire pro-choice discussion to boil that decision down to you know, cooking up, like, some kind of particular, like, human tissue cocktail is really demeaning and really not going to win them points in the long run. The pro-choice position, with its use of this language, is driving people away who would otherwise be interested in what they have to say. Just because you believe that women sh should have a right to choose does not mean that it is an easy choice or that you believe that it is always an easy choice. And by framing it as a consistently easy choice that does not need to be complicated and that should boil down to basically just getting your toenails cut is going to drive people away, mischaracterize the discussion, and totally miss what a lot of people's personal experience about this situation actually is. A woman who wants to have a baby and chooses to have an abortion because it is threatening her life is someone who is in a very difficult moral quandary and whose position and perspective and experience is not being appreciated when you say that ah, it's totally fine, the thing was basically a gummy bear. If, in fact, the pro-choice perspective wants to incorporate women's experiences, they're going to have to start recognizing those women's experiences, even when those women's experiences disagree with the party line. That's what Mananen emphasizes here, and I think that it's a really insightful perspective to keep in mind. The fact is, as I've been emphasizing throughout, this is a women's rights issue. It's not just a matter of the fetus should have rights or shouldn't have rights the way that Christians and pro-life advocates tend to frame it. It is also not just a women's rights issue. There are bigger considerations at stake here, or at least equally valid considerations at stake here. Yes, women should have rights. Women should have say what's, go what's going on in their bodies. And yes, I totally agree that there are tons of women who are coerced into having babies and for whom abortion may be the only way out at this point in time. But as much as this may be an issue that abortion rectifies, abortion seems to me to be a fairly lousy solution in many of those cases. One of the things that I found most frustrating about this debate as it most recently propped up were the people who very much insisted that without abortion we cannot have women's rights, and women's reproductive rights especially. John Oliver and his... Uh, session on last week tonight responding to the issue emphasized that abortion is the cornerstone of contemporary reproductive rights and reproductive health. And if that's the case, I have a lot of questions. 
like, can our health system even confront the issue of pregnancy, of reproduction, and of the problems that may be associated with it if our default perspective, if the cornerstone of this whole issue is, let's just get rid of the fetus? Should that be an option? Probably. At the very least, it should be considered, and it should be considered in this greater context. But on the one hand, we shouldn't be badgering women not to choose this perspective because it would, you know, kill a fetus. But on the other perspective, we should not be consoling women that it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. And we, the person getting the abortion, the person who is having this experience, so not we in this case because I'm a dude and this is not an issue I'm ever going to be wrestling with personally, the person in the chair, the person who is making the decision, is the one who should be making the decision. And they should be given the whole perspective. And I imagine that for most people, that is on their minds. You can browbeat them into thinking that, you know, it's a life and you cannot possibly morally, justifiably get rid of a life. And this woman is thinking, is it really a life in that perspective? It's not the same as going and murdering someone. But at the same time, someone who is, you know, telling this woman who is making this decision, don't worry about it, it's not a life yet, it's just a series of cells, much as that might be consolation, it isn't going to silence the little voice in the back of her head that's saying, yeah, but this could be a child. Am I ready for that? Do I want to have a baby? Is this going to hurt my chances in the future? And as much as there is no scientific evidence of any later repercussions, at the same time, a person has to take these considerations in mind. It's not as simple as getting a haircut. We do that routinely. Abortion happens not routinely, at least for the people making the abortion and not the people performing it surgically. So as much as I think that the pro-life perspective is rooted in totally nonsense theology and metaphysics, I tend to think that the pro-choice is surprisingly hypocritical about its attitude towards women in this situation. As much as this is supposedly about women's rights and women's bodies, it very much marginalizes a very important perspective that a lot of women hold. If we're going to have this pro-choice perspective, if we're going to have this pro-choice discussion, then it can't just be a purely party-line perspective where it's just cells, it's just tissue, it's a gummy bear, a newborn guppy clipping one's toenails. Like... That's not the whole story. And that's what I want to emphasize in both of these perspectives. For both cases, it's not the whole story. For the pro-life position, yes, that fetus could grow into a child. It's also, and I should emphasize this because I haven't talked about it yet, an obligation on the woman to carry it for nine months with potential complications, with lots of discomfort, with very great limitations on what she can do during that time, and not... That ignores also the potential issues that are surrounding that fetus down the road after it's born. Um, never mind, like, the poverty situation they might be in or, you know, the issues that surround putting it up for adoption or possibly being involved in foster care. Like, it's a complicated issue. It's a really complicated issue. It involves the personhood of the fetus and the rights of the woman and also the socioeconomic situation that we are all dwelling in, the welfare system in the state that we might be living in, or the legal ramifications, you know, as far as whether we're supposed to vote one way or another or who we're supposed to elect 
one way or another. And that doesn't even get into the issues of, okay, so who's footing the bill? Like, is your employer obligated to give you the money to provide you with an abortion due to the health insurance plan? Or is that something that the employer is exempt from because the employer has, perhaps, issues or disagreements with the way that this is being conducted? Like, can you, in fact, get an abortion on your employer's dime? Or is there other, you know, do you have to fund it yourself? Like, it's ridiculously complicated. And the fact of the matter is, the discussion that we're having is not a complicated one. It is an effort to swing the discussion into one or the other simple perspectives. If you, in fact, abort a baby, it is murder, is the pro-life position. And by emphasizing this perspective, this attitude, either with biblical defenses or without them, it swings people over to that side. But on the other side, it is abortion is inconsequential, abortion is getting a haircut, which again totally misses so much of the debate and the issue. It's complicated in short. And on the one hand, I anticipate that people listening to this lecture are going to say, it's not complicated. It's just murder, or it's just a surgical operation. It is not complicated, and by complicating it, you are essentially lending ammunition to the other side. You are swinging more people against a position which is crucial to the health of women in this country today or to the health and rights of fetuses, children today. And that's fine, I guess, if that is your perspective, but I find it extremely frustrating. Because the fact of the matter is, Again, we're not talking about the values or merits of one side or the other. We're talking about the debate. Today we're talking about the abortion debate, or the lack of abortion debate, the abortion non-debate. And this is endemic of the way that politics in this country works. What makes abortion such a fascinating example to study has less to do with the issues of identity and women's rights, and more to do with the way that this political machine has framed these two perspectives and entrenched people on both sides of the issue. Abortion is as much a wedge issue as ever there has been one. And what I want to emphasize is from the political perspective, from the perspective of the guy sitting at the debate podium who is looking out at the audience wondering how many of them are voting red and how many of them are voting blue, for the people who want you to vote their side, it is extremely convenient to make this issue simple to oversimplify the issue, to remove all of the complexity in the discussion. It is very convenient for Donald Trump to get up at the podium and say, abortions are sacred living beings, and I support the pro-life agenda, because all of those people who have even remotely that sort of perspective, who agree with that from a Christian angle or whatever, immediately swing over to his side, become more and more vocal, repeat those same talking points, simplify the issue even more. Likewise, the people who hear Joe Biden although Joe Biden is not a terribly staunch pro-choice advocate, say that we need to respect a woman's right to choose, are going to swing in that direction as well. 
if anything, Biden has been surprisingly ambivalent on this issue. Like, do your homework. He's Catholic. Um, but nonetheless, it, ch it doesn't change the fact that for pro-choice advocacy, Democrats typically will put forward someone who is willing to say abortion is just a haircut, just a routine surgical procedure, has no dangers, is a, the cornerstone of women's reproductive health, and people swing over to that side as well. But what I want to emphasize is that this makes these figures look strong when they are not. It makes Trump look like a pro-life warrior when in fact he's just making a point and getting people over to his side. He's just consolidating his base. He's just rallying his voters. When he says that all of those terrible Democrats are engaged in, you know, a holocaust of babies, are engaged in genocide of the unborn, what he is doing is he is turning this into a fear issue. He is turning this into a panic. He is trying to reject all of those nuanced positions we were just talking about in favor of turning people into a mob and a mob on his side. And likewise, when Democrats start raising the horn about, oh, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. We need to get more Supreme Court justices who support our agenda into the court because otherwise women's health is in jeopardy. There is some justification to this perspective, but it is also another moral panic. It is also, let's rally our base. Let's get people on Twitter and Facebook and social media elsewhere to start parroting Abortion is a perfectly safe procedure. There is nothing to indicate that a fetus is, has anything resembling human life and personhood. We will also simplify the issue in this, for the sake of galvanizing our base and turning people against one another. These are people who therefore look strong. They stand up before the other guy and say, I refuse to accept even the smallest component of your position. And in doing so, I am strong. I will be confident. I will take this political office and I will not budge an inch on this issue. And people see that and they say to themselves, that's a strong candidate. That's someone who I can care about. That's someone who cares passionately for an issue that I care about and therefore I can support them. But it is a misrepresentation at the end of the day. As much as there are people who do agree, one side or the other, abortion is murder, or alternatively, abortion is just a surgical procedure, as much as there are people who stand on one side of that fence or the other and are happily willing to accept whatever strong, catchy political buzz phrase that candidate is putting forth, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who have more thoughts on the issue. And for a lot of those people who do take a very simplified stance, when they are in fact facing these decisions, when in fact they think about these issues, when in fact they're sitting in my ethics class saying to themselves, wait, am I actually pro-life at all? Or am I actually pro-choice at all? What I find is it's more complicated to them as well. This is a blind. Like, as much as this is politically expedient and rallying bases and getting legislation passed and changing the way that our government works, you know, an important part of the democratic process, it turns us into worse people, blinder people, more ignorant people. It turns us into people who don't appreciate the complexity of the, these things. And the fact of the matter is, I am not going to go to bat for either the pro-life or pro-choice agenda. 
but I will go to bat for raising the level of intellectual discourse about these issues, of not boiling it down to these oversimplified perspectives. And I want to emphasize that especially on the pro-life side, because as far as I'm concerned, this isn't just, you know, about like what your religious perspectives are or what your personal convictions about metaphysics and human life are. At the end of the day, I think that since the 80s especially, perhaps even earlier, certainly since Roe v. Wade, the conservative right has very much been pandering to Christians at the same time as they are leading them around by the nose. Abortion isn't the most important issue in the Bible by a long shot. But by emphasizing the role of abortion in the Bible, by emphasizing the obligation that Christians have to be pro-life and to vote pro-life, conservatives have largely managed to box Christians into a corner, force them to vote for candidates that otherwise no Christian in their right mind would consider. And in fact, what I see in churches today is more conservatism than Christianity, more Republicans than religious folks. That's a huge problem from where I'm sitting. That's where I'm most annoyed. Like, as much as I am absolutely annoyed by bad theology and exegesis, I think the reason why I'm seeing so much bad theology and exegesis is because we are essentially performing eisegesis on a text that doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to say about abortion because we are so convinced that abortion is wrong and therefore read that back into the text. That's why we keep translating that passage in Exodus as though it has nothing to do with miscarriage or losing a child. That's why we tend to overemphasize passages like those in Psalms that emphasize, you know, we were born or we were known since, the, since we were in the womb. I think the Republican right is very much muscling Christianity into being a single or double-issue voting block, in short. And that's not the way it works. Christianity is complicated. And as much as Christianity does tend to argue in favor of the rights of a fetus, that has to be balanced against a lot of the liberties, civil liberties and voting rights and other things that conservatives and Republicans tend to have very little trouble abrogating. Like, again, Christians shouldn't support hypocrites, and there seem to be a lot of hypocrites on the Republican right. Not to say that there aren't on the left by any extent of the imagination. Politics is hypocrisy in a very real sense. Let's not lose sight of that. But if Christians are in fact going to take a moral stance and have an influence in politics, they can't be led, they have to be leaders. Likewise, for Democrats, I think that the abortion issue has been overly simplified. The Democrats have frequently framed themselves as the moral leaders of the country, refusing to engage in hypocrisy, respecting the traditions of the Constitution, and res respecting the democratic process. But if they are oversimplifying the, the abortion issue, it's going to be real hard for them to come back around and say, also we support women's rights, women's experiences, women's struggles, women's difficulties in overcoming this dilemma. It's, you can't do both, guys. Either women are supposed to be making a decision and supposed to be making an informed decision and just supposed to be making a careful informed decision, or they're going to support your agenda. They're going to specifically all be pro-choice, and in some cases, even pro-abortion, whatever that means. 
What I've seen from the Democrats and what has frustrated me about the Democratic position in respect to this leak from the Supreme Court is that that has all gone by the wayside. Usually when I got into a discussion with a Democrat who had a strong opinion about abortion, I would come at it from a fairly moderate position. Let's not emphasize abortion when you go talk to pro-lifers. Let's emphasize instead rights for women. Let's talk about welfare. Let's talk about financing single mothers. Let's talk about supporting people so they can actually make an informed decision. And on the one hand, I think this is a slam dunk. This absolutely calls pro-lifers to account. If you, in fact, do support life, then perhaps support these other perspectives that would allow women to, in fact, have children, support them, make informed choices, and not be coerced either by boyfriends who want to get rid of the child because it would be too much work, or alternatively by boyfriends and husbands and so on who want them to keep the child because family. If women are supposed to have a choice, then they have to have an actual choice. And if, in fact, you support life, then you should support women being supported by the government when they are in a situation that is otherwise untenable for them. Like, people are really quick to point out on the left, yeah, the right says they're pro-life, but they're still refusing any legislation about gun control. Yeah, they, they say that they're pro-life, but they refuse to support welfare programs that would allow women to raise their kids. Okay, so call them out on that. But the response I usually have when I confronted Democrats on this subject was, I don't want to waste my time talking to intractable people when I could instead be doing good. And on some level, I find this the most frustrating perspective of all. Because to me, what the Democrats have supposedly represented with their supposed moral leadership is they support the system. They support democracy. And their argument against the, lights, the likes of the alt-right and Trump especially is that they have very much undermined those systems. Trump has argued con consistently and repeatedly that the electoral process is not to be trusted, that the vote that caused him to lose the election was a shame. And there seems to be increasing evidence that the Republicans are even okay with seizing power via, like insurrections like we saw on January 6th of 2021. That's bad. I don't care whether you stand on the Republican or Democrat side, anyone who is throwing shade on the election is bad news. That's undermining the very foundation of what this country is all about, undermining the very foundation of what democracy is all about. That's bad, 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 bad news, and we should not be tolerating any of that nonsense. But what the Democrats seem to be doing here is saying, we don't need to see the Democratic, or the Democratic angle here. We do not need to reach over and convince people who generally we believe are ignorant, misinformed, indoctrinated, brainwashed by some sort of conservative right-wing media that is out of step with what reality actually is. Instead, the perspective is, we refuse to talk to them. We, too, are polarized, in short. To which I would then respond, then what are you doing? Like, half of the conversations I saw on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever on social media were just people sounding off. It was not, you know, here, donate to this charity, or here, donate to this fund. Like, it was shock and dismay, and at the same time as I was, you know, sympathetic to these problems, I'm sitting there thinking, have you not seen this coming? Nothing has changed here. 
Like, I called overturning Roe v. Wade back in 2017 when Trump got elected. Like, I literally sat in front of my ethics class and said, just you watch. Now that there is a Republican in office, and now that these Supreme Court justices are getting old, you better believe there are going to be states enacting legislation like the heartbeat legislation, which literally got enacted months after I said so, where now we're going to try and challenge Roe v. Wade Roe v. Wade in an effort to get it overturned. Now that there are more Republican justices than Democratic justices, this is what it's going to look like. And honestly, you could have predicted it earlier than that. This was a dead set, totally no-holds-barred, anything-to-get-it-done issue for the Republicans. For decades, it's been that way. That's why they refused to accept any candidate that Obama put forward as a Supreme Court nomination until Trump came into office. That's how we ended up with the Supreme Court stacked in this particular way. That's why Roe v. Wade is being considered or being con or overturned or consideration for Roe v. Wade is being overturned, however you want to phrase it. That's why it's in jeopardy now. Nothing changed when the leak happened besides confirming the suspicions of literally decades of determined Republican efforts. So this isn't not, this is not just not a debate. This is not an issue. It hasn't been for a long time. We've all seen this transition coming. We've all seen conservative, or conservative and Democratic justices hanging on to the bitter end lest Roe v. Wade be changed one way or the other. And when in fact... A Democratic justice died during a Republican's president's tenure. That was it. That was the end of the issue. That was where everything changed. So this is not political reality in any sense. Nor is it comparable to actual reality based on the fact that the both sides of the discussion are completely distorting the reality of the issue. This whole thing is nonsense. From top to bottom, start to finish... All it's doing is further entrenching people in their already polarized perspectives. Democrats, by echoing the same talking points, the same vitriolic language, abortion is just a haircut, a fetus is just a gummy bear, is just pushing more people further towards the left, while Republicans are doing the same on the right. And there is no longer room for a discussion to be had. Like, as much as I am sitting here saying, I want to talk about the abortion debate, I don't want to make the assumptions that people are making, I fully expect that there are going to be people angry about this representation, about this perspective. The fact that I didn't come down hard one way or the other. The fact that I dared to tread in some moderate middle ground. But if, in fact... There is going to be hope for the democratic process in this country, then there has to be hope for some kind of rationality, some kind of compromise, some kind of discussion. It can't just be one majority trying to punch down another majority. It can't be people just trying to outweigh each other with the sheer number of perspectives that are on their side. Because it's not that simple. There are ethical issues to be considered here. And for that matter, you know, since when are majorities allowed to just ride roughshod over minorities in the first place? Since when is that what America is all about? Like, from where I'm sitting, the whole point of government is that it is supposed to support the will of the majority while protecting the rights of the minority. 
And sometimes that's what it looks like. Sometimes it doesn't. And by polarizing it, by turning people into these one camp or the other, ride or die, pro-life or pro-choice, or pro-gun control or anti-gun control, or any of the dozens of issues that have been painted into these two corners in this particular way, which again, abortion is hardly the only one of one of these issues, and it's just emblematic of this particular kind of rhetoric and perspective, we're going to increasingly be unable to see anything but our own perspective. We're going to be increasingly unable to have any discussion. And this is great for the people who are running for office. It means that they don't have to get into nuanced debates. It means that they don't have to come up with creative legislative solutions. There was a shooting this week. Oh, I guess we'll just put more cops in school since that is the option that everybody seems to be okay with. Oh, Roe v. Wade is getting overturned? Well, I guess we'll just galvanize the base and hopefully turn around the midterm elections. Who cares about whether things actually change as long as I get to keep my seat? And it is very easy to keep my seat when all I need to do is just spout off the same nonsense year after year, day after day, week after week. If we want to see change in this country, then we're going to have to see nuanced perspectives. We're going to have to elect politicians who are willing to do things like compromise, who are willing to come up with creative solutions and not just retread the old sore spots in our collective psyches. We're going to have to quit turning this into a tug-of-war back and forth and start considering other options that make more than just one group of people happy. We're going to stop having to, you know, basically outclass, outpunch the opposite side because otherwise we just end up with, okay, Trump comes to power and overturns all of the, Bi the Obama legislation, Biden comes to power, overturns all the Trump legislation, whoever Biden's successor is will come in and overturn all the Biden legislation, and back and forth, and we end up in the wishy-washiest, fence-jumpingest country in the world that nobody can trust and where nobody is safe because what is law one year could be something totally different eight years down the line. That's a nightmare. And that's what we are currently facing right now. The internet has done a lot to make sure that that remains the status quo. And as much as I respect the plight of both Christians who are desperately trying to keep our nation from committing this horrific sin of murdering fetuses, as well as I sympathize with those who are desperately trying to secure and protect women's rights from being outshouted out and out-ignored by a patriarchal system that refuses to recognize the troubles and problems that a pregnancy imposes on their own bodies without their decision or input. As much as I am sympathetic to both of these perspectives, both of these sides, my stance is that we need to change the way we're talking about this stuff. Because as much as it is important, because as much as it is desperately important for so many people right now to get these issues resolved in their particular way, as much as there are Christians who are convinced that every day that there is that abortion is legal, they are complicit in what is effectively murder and genocide, and just as there are women who are desperately in need of an abortion because their entire livelihoods are on the line here, as much as I am sympathetic to both of those, I recognize that if we just boil this down to talking points again, we're just kicking this can down the line. 
we're just going to make this a non-issue, a non-debate for another bunch of years to come. If we want to really fix things, if we want to really come to a consensus, if we want that woman who is in need of abortion to be represented and respected, not just today, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, then we got to put something in place that's more than, ju than just, hey, you know, our side happens to be stronger this week, so we're going to do what we want, and you can just suck it. That's what this whole government system is supposed to do. Like, it's supposed to make us better, as Aristotle might have put it. Not just to serve one or the other of us, depending on which one of us has the most money and the most votes in any given moment. As long as democracy is just majority overrules minority, everyone's going to lose. When it becomes something about compromise, when it becomes about coming up with creative solutions, when it becomes recognizing the issues for what they are and not just mischaracterizing them, oversimplifying them, turning them into palatable talking points, as long as that's the status quo, it's not going to be real democracy. And it's not going to incorporate all of our perspectives, and it's not going to represent our positions, and it's not going to ultimately help any of us. We've already seen how fragile this democracy is. The more polarized it gets, the more divisive it gets, the more danger it comes into. That doesn't mean that we can let people hold it hostage. We cannot just submit to Republicans for the unity of the nation. But we also can't ignore them and let them just simmer, stew in their own rage and discontent. There should be an abortion debate. There should be a conversation. There should be some rational discussion of what we can do instead of just shouting at each other. So if you are sitting there shouting at one or the other, if you are sounding off on Twitter, on Facebook, I want you to think about that, to reevaluate. Yes, I understand that you want to validate people's suffering and their pain, and I want you to, to help others recognize that they are not alone. But I ask you, how many people are feeling even more alone as a consequence? We can do better, and we should. Anyway, that's my stand on the non-debate that is abortion discussion in our country today. Um, again, it'll probably be a couple of weeks before I'm starting to upload the Troy and the Trojan War lectures, but you can look forward to that in the near future. Again, get your copy of Stanley Lombardo's Iliad. We're going to be taking it apart in great detail, as well as discussing many of the other issues surrounding it. I hope that this was edifying. I hope that this was informative. Um, if you do have questions about the abortion issue, there's a lot of resources online, although, again, many of them are in that sort of vitriolic, polarized perspective. If you are looking for a more nuanced take, definitely look up some of the sources that I talked about. Um, David Foster Wallace's argument in his dictionary review, uh, Peter Kreef's An Apple Argument Against Abortion is freely available online. Um, you can track down both Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay, A Defense of Abortion, and Mary Ann Warren's essay on the moral and legal status of abortion um, online pretty easily. Menonen's essay about expanding the pro-choice discussion 
is, I believe, something that you can find or track down, hopefully, with access to a library. Um, and, you know, all of these are good sources. They are all looking at this issue from an informed and nuanced light. It is, in fact, good discussion. Discussion that comes from a rational perspective and that is arguing one way or the other. So I highly encourage you to look up some of those sources, especially if you do have a strong opinion and you do want to come at this from a more informed and nuanced perspective. Um, if you are having troubles, if you are debating with someone who is totally intractable, as always, I can't necessarily prescribe a method by which you can convince them that you are right and your position is superior. Um, what I can say, though, is listen. Um, so much of this debate and so much of this discussion is about talking, about talking over people and about ignoring alternative perspectives. I've found that if you listen to students, to people with strong opinions, A, you'll find that they qu very quickly start questioning their own perspectives when they realize how shallow their understanding of the issue is, which is a great opportunity for everybody to learn. Uh, but also just you know, find out why it is that people believe what they believe. Like, I talked about why some Christians look to the Bible as their argument. I talked about some of the essays that a lot of Democrats and liberals tend to hold up as, as great examples of the abortion discussion. That's hardly comprehensive. If you want to have this discussion, it's going to start with you sidelining your personal feelings on the subject and coming to understand what other people believe, why they believe what they believe, what arguments, what sources what voices they are listening to and coming to those perspectives and opinions. This is worldview stuff, guys. It's bigger than just, you know, this is the rational side and this is the irrational side. This is about how one perceives the entire construct of information, media, politics, etc. It's real hard to overturn it with a word. Definitely not possible with 140 characters. Listen to people, respond accordingly. In the meantime, happy reading, and I will talk to you soon, a couple weeks probably, about Troy and the Trojan War. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.